So when I say the following last names, many of you will instantly know the type of person of whom I speak. Bayheim, Calhoun, Rupp, Knight, Wooden, Williams, of course, Smith. There's probably one other name I should really mention in this list. I'm going to do it, Mike Krzyzewski. <laughs> Probably, personally, rather sing for the beauty of the earth, though. These are the names of college basketball's great, great coaches. There are many more, of course. I probably have enough Davidson grads here that I ought to name Lefty Drizel. But if I have omitted your favorite coach, then please know that the list is long and full of greatness. As we continue our sermon series marching through the final four of our hymn bracket, it should surprise no one that we have arrived at a hymn penned by Charles Wesley. Among hymn writers, Charles Wesley is most certainly one of the all-time greats. Now, when we measure the greatness of a basketball coach, we often cite all-time wins or maybe win percentages. And at the highest end of that list, you'll see numbers hovering in that 1,200 range for the greatest of the greats. Well, no offense to any of these esteemed coaches, but such numbers pale in comparison to the number of hymns penned by Charles Wesley. It's estimated that he may have written lyrics for as many as 10,000 hymns in his lifetime, many of them on horseback riding from revival to revival. Scholars more familiar with the man than I believe that he wrote roughly 10 lines of verse every day, and he did that for 50 years. His equally regarded brother, John Wesley, served as his editor. He said of his brother's hymn craft, some were good, some were mediocre, and some were exceptional. Today we tune our hearts to what is perhaps Charles Wesley's most beloved hymn text, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. Now what sets Wesley's hymns apart is his knack for folding scripture into his verses, and our reading today certainly furnishes the dramatic conclusion to this beloved hymn. So a reading from the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, fair warning, we have an odd one here today. So let us pray for God's wisdom as we hear and receive this word. God, your word is not always clear. In fact, at times it can be downright mystifying. So bless us with the spirit of understanding as we delve into the divine mysteries that surround your heavenly throne. Amen. After this, I looked, and there in heaven a door stood open, 
And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And around the throne are twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones are twenty-four elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there is something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with a face like a human. And the fourth living creature, like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne, and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, singing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me ask, are any of you the type of person who's enamored by royalty? Did any of you wake up extra early to catch the pageantry of King Charles' coronation a few months back? Did any of you glue yourself to the TV for any of the royal weddings? I figure there's some of you out there. I am not one of those people. In fact, I... This is embarrassing. I distinctly remember going into the office. This was back in 2018, and the whole staff at that Virginia church was talking about Harry and Meghan this and Harry and Meghan that. And the conversation kept going, and the whole time I was desperately flipping through the mental Rolodex of church members or visitors. Harry, Meghan, Harry, Meghan. After... After a while, I finally broke down and asked, y'all, who are you talking about? What's their last name? And when did they join the church? (laughs) My colleague, Kim, looked at me like I had a third eye. We're talking about Prince Harry and Princess Meghan, who just got married. And last I checked, they're not pledging members of the church. (laughs) Oh, that Harry and Meghan... Y'all, I just don't live and breathe British royalty. And I think that's in part because they, they just lead a life that's so distant from the one I know. And that might be very well what makes them so fascinating to others. And now, sure, their lives are grand and elegant, but they also are hemmed in on every side by rules of etiquette 
and decorum, customs that they are steeped in from birth, like so much black tea. Pinky out, of course, right? Well, a number of years ago, the ever-present paparazzi captured the perfect illustration of this. It was Prince William and Kate had taken their children on a royal visit to Poland, and as they walked down that red carpet rolled out on the tarmac, their daughter, Charlotte, a toddler who may very well have still been wearing diapers, turned to these Polish dignitaries, and she offered a curtsy. Do you remember this at all? It wasn't the most elegant bow, but it was revealing of how this child is being shaped to engage the world around her. Now, the book of Revelation is about as bizarre as Scripture gets. And this vision of a throne room that we read this morning rivals anything you will find in Buckingham Palace. Flaming torches, four creatures, six wings each covered with eyes, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. So yeah, bizarre might be an understatement. I think, I think the gist is that we have reached the limits of human language. Whatever the author is seeing here, it, it defies all explanation. The thing about the book of Revelation, though, and really the entire New Testament, is that Rome and the emperor cast a shadow over every dotted I and every crossed T. Rome is simultaneously the water in which the early church existed and the stream against which it swam, which also means that Revelation has less to do with predicting things that are to come and more about describing the lived experience of the earliest Christ followers. I would argue it's impossible to understand this vision of the heavenly throne room without understanding that. All right, at the very center of this vision, amidst the the fantastical flames and the four creatures, there's something that would have been very familiar in the Roman Empire, a throne. If the emperor appeared in public more times than not, he would be seated on a throne. When the emperor traveled, it was not uncommon for a subject community to send representatives dressed in white to present him with a crown, a recognition of his sovereignty. Those who approached the throne bowed down and prostrated themselves before the throne. It's not at all unlike what you might find at the local dog park when one canine goes belly up in deference to a more dominant dog. In such a context, this vision, while it's more than flowery language and fantastical imagery, it's making a very strong, very risky statement. The one seated on the throne of all creation. It's not Caesar. It's Christ. And so those who follow him do not go belly up for Caesar. We bend the knee, curtsy, and cast our crowns before God and God alone. 
That's the message buried in this bizarre corner of the Bible. Now, in this land of the free, it's been a long time since we cut ties with British royalty, and we are not in the habit of literally bowing. But that does not mean we won't prostrate ourselves before something or someone else. Idols surround, demagogues abound, and we joyfully give our devotion to all manner of unworthy objects, lost in wonder, love, and praise to gods that do not and cannot save us. In fact, that's why we sing hymns in the first place. Hymns like Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. They remind us of our true allegiance. They shape us until we bow and bend the knee to the only one who's worthy of our worship. Now, you may not know it, but that purple hymnal in front of you celebrates its 10th anniversary this summer. I lovingly refer to it as the perp. But have you ever noticed the title on that book? Now, its predecessor, many of you will remember, the blue hymnal, right, was imaginatively entitled the Presbyterian Hymnal. Before that, the red one, others of you might remember, was called the Hymn Book. They're not bad titles. They're not. You certainly know what you're getting into when you crack the spine. But this most recent purple hymnal, it's called Glory to God. It's a subtle reminder of what all of this is for, what the pulpit and the font and the table, the organ, the choirs, the singing, the liturgy, the preaching, the sacraments, what it's all for. It's our worship and our praise given to the proper object of our worship and praise. God alone. Worship doesn't exist to inspire us. It doesn't exist to make us feel better. In fact, worship really isn't about us at all. Worship reminds us who is worthy of our praise. Worship shapes us until we bow, if even inelegantly, to the only one who deserves it. Because like a princess still toddling, we need practice. Our stiff necks and our stubborn hearts, they do not easily bend. In worship, we hear of a God who created everything out of nothing. A God who makes promises to Abraham and Sarah. A God who made a way for freedom through the waters of the Red Sea. In worship, we hear of a God who loves enough to risk incarnation. And we hear of a God who will not even let death stand between us. In worship, we hear of a love divine, all loves excelling. And it elicits a response of praise. The neck softens, the knee bends, and we find ourselves in a deep 
deep bow.